I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. What's up, Rebels? Happy New Year. Welcome back to Rebel Radio. I hope that in 2015, we lived up to your very low expectations of us. And I hope to set them even lower for this year. That's my goal. What's your goal? You make New Year's resolutions? If you do, I really don't care. So don't post that on Twitter. Post something else on Twitter, at Rebel Radio Net, and wish us a Happy New Year or something else. Hey, my guest today is Peanut Butter Wolf. Man, this dude is a unique individual. He's the founder of Stone's Throw Records. They're going on their 20th anniversary now in 2016. And uh, if you don't know Stone's Throw, they're an important label in, in underground hip-hop, but so much more than that. Um, as they explore different genres, and we're going to talk about that in the interview. He's known for giving us records from Mad Lib, Mad Villain, Jay Dilla, some of Dilla's best work, uh, Mayor Hawthorne, friend of Rebel Radio, Aloe Black with the hit I Need a Dollar. Those are just some of his releases, and on top of that, he's a DJ, and um, this dude is like I would describe him as a pure creative. He, we we're going to talk in the interview about how he's built this business over the years. And if you heard the Dave Weiner interview from last week, it's interesting to me because these are two guys that have both been very successful, complete opposite approaches. And, you know, where Dave, you know, we talked about his approach, which is very business minded, very uh, research driven all that stuff and peanut butter wolf is just he makes records that he wants to listen to and sometimes you want to listen to him too anyway we'll get into that and a lot more but first let's hear the edm.com track of the week i didn't do it yes you did now she's leaving with the kids never gonna forgive you it is what it is moved out and she was gone but your job better Red Aaron, you was wrong. Now you can be alone. I can find better. But without you, our house is not a home. How Dion sing that song? She said middle finger. Staring at the goggles in my 
my dome, fearing that I don't got no self-control, and I'm hearing out the Maybe you guys hear our background noise. We're live in the streets. Actually, we're indoors. But uh, we've, we've added these ambient noises in for your listening pleasure. That was Abstract Rude with a track called Still Was Mine as the EDM.com track of the week. And now your interview with Peanut Butter Wolf. Peanut Butter Wolf. What's up, man? Thanks for being here. No headphones. I like that. It's different. Oh, yeah. Keep it uh, easy, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you coming. You know, I said in my, my email to you that, you know, you're sort of the perfect guy in a lot of ways for this show because, you know, as much as it's about culture and, and hip-hop and the love of music, it's also about entrepreneurship. Right. And you kind of blend those things together in yeah. really a unique way. And I think, you know, as I was doing some research i learned kind of more about just how uniquely you've, you've managed to do that and um you know we've known each other over the years but it's always yeah. like you know a handshake usually from usually behind the tables right um you know at a at a party exactly and um so you know i'm excited to, to have you here and to dig in a little bit to to how you're doing it yeah um so thank you thank you what uh so many things I want to get into, but uh, uh, let's. I like to start maybe at the beginning, right? And um, when did you know you were gonna make music for a living? Um. Well, I would say like, I mean, I started um, really. I guess I started DJing and making beats at the same time, and at this point, hip hop was. It was kind of the Run DMC era where it was really stripped down, just drum machine, and then scratching a stab from a record, from a disco record, going, uh -huh. and or like a rock record, and um, yeah, so that was like early, oh, well, no, not early, like mid '80s, and I would record stuff, you know, what I was doing. So I think at that point, I mean, it was really, it was a dream, but um, I wasn't sure like how far I would be able to take it or anything. Cause I did, there were always people telling me that I wouldn't make it doing that basically. I mean, especially being in San Jose cause yeah. San Jose is not necessarily the um, epicenter of hip hop music or, or music in general. I sure. Mean, especially it, at the time it was pretty suburban. Yeah. But like, yeah. Now it's a, it's a big city. Yeah. I mean, I really like growing up in, in high school, I guess my friends were from all different races and stuff. And it, that, that was like, you know, I, that's that was just like always what I knew. All my best friends were black, Mexican, Filipino, you know, everything mm -hmm. Indian. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, San Jose was progressive. Um, and a, as I got older, like when I was when I started releasing records, people would say, oh, that's that West Coast sound. And I didn't even know there really was a West Coast sound sure. like yeah. other than like Summer of Love type like 60s and. Um, but I'm kind of jumping all over the place. So, but the mid eighties, I think, you know, and I actually have, um, a high school term paper that I wrote where it said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I wanted to start a record label. Nice. And at that point, the, the labels, all, all my favorite hip hop was coming out on independent labels. Yeah. Um, the cold chillings of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot profiled. Def Jam, of course. And so do you remember the first party you played? 
first um, well yeah i mean i did like house parties and stuff the first time i was really on a stage i think performing for people was 1987 and that was i i was opening for trenier who was mm -hmm. like a freestyle artist yeah yeah so she was she was big in the freestyle world and like unknown outside of it and it's it's still that way for her she still does shows and stuff but yeah i remember she she came in a pink rolls royce limousine and she like kicked me out of the backstage and just really <laughs> had a lot of attitude and stuff and i was like this nervous little kid like oh sorry yeah but um what'd you play well i was in a group with a, a rapper named cool breeze actually at the time so i was djing for him he was rapping and i was just scratching and it was my beats and stuff so mm -hmm. and we recorded that at this guy alexander mejia's place who's yeah. still kind of in the music industry sure yeah, Alex was like a, he was a legend in the Bay Area. Yeah, for exactly. sure. Put a lot of people on the map. Absolutely. So, but I mean, yeah, those early days. I think what really got me, kind of believing that it could happen, was seeing King Shamik, who was also from San Jose, mm -hmm. and he moved to New York, and then he started working with Twin Hype and King Sun and a lot of people. And I remember he, w I would see him on TV on BET. Like he had a nine hundred number with with twin hype and i was like dang this dude made it like he's from san jose and he's like on tv and so th that really after that i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna really pursue this more you know yeah and and so that was around 1990 i guess okay and that's when i put out my first record i put out a record a group called lyrical prophecy mm -hmm. The journey to voice yet the marks are flexing. The swing this magic on metaphors chosen. The brain is active through less than been frozen. Particles left on the scene where I'm warring. Flame in the dome, another fist is swarming. Stand me down in the chamber of hearts. It's our third eye, the land of darkness. Sending a message to the soul when I dispatch. Note for note, every message I lap. Miracle madness, phase and engaging. Attack the three, me and two other people put the money in and we're trying to do all the promotion because I was DJing on college radio at the time. So okay, did you was there like a a vision at the time for for what you were trying to create, or did were you just kind of in the flow and you just sort of did it? I did, and I I do. I have all that stuff still too. I I keep everything like I write, like I have like notes, like you know all the the goals, like being in the source. You're saying that you wrote yeah. for the source, and like. Um, being on in living color and all this stuff but i mean it was a lot more intricate than that i'm just that's just kind of sure. what i remember right now yeah. but um with that record yeah we it, it was that was like because hammer was out and mm -hmm. too short and e40 and that was about it from the bay area and what we were doing was a lot more conscious like east coast um rock him influence nation of five percent kind of you know brand newbie and all that so yeah um yeah we we had like a real strong vision of what we wanted to do and then the other guy that made the beats with me he later changed his name his name was dj raleem and then he changed his name to assassin and he was like doing all the bay area gangsta stuff okay stuff with tupac and like yeah you know. but um yeah that i mean by 1990 i definitely knew that this is at that point i was real passionate about it and i, I was like this is i'm gonna do this yeah and was there um a, you know you mentioned labels you know culture and def jam and stuff like that mostly on the east coast mm -hmm. like, that you kind of looked up to they were yeah was there um 
was there a mentor or th at that time or somebody kind of helping you shape figure out what to do or, or were you just like was it trial and error or how does that come uh, on the label side yeah i mean i i think like def jam because there was always even back then we knew that it was started um i think probably from the the crush groove movie or something but it was kind of started in their basement and yeah you know college students and stuff so when you hear about that then that that definitely encourages you to push forward with it but mm -hmm. um you know, there was a, I mean, it, it was also kind of an uphill battle doing quote unquote East Coast hip hop in the Bay Area because sure. nobody wanted to hear that really. They mm -hmm. were like, you're, you're from the West and you're sounding like the East. And then when Cypress Hill came out and Farside, then it was a little more accepted, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, now, you know, in retrospect, you know, we have the Farside, we have Freestyle Fellowship, we have, yeah, you know, Hyro. Yep. thing and you know there's there's a lot of i mean those lines are, are very much more blurred and those were the early ones i mean yeah. now it's yeah it's just all like you know you got asap rocky sounding like he's from the south and he's from new york sure. or you know whatever yeah i mean he doesn't really sound like he's from anywhere anymore but yeah but that's because the, it's, it's the influences just sort of are everywhere happening. yeah yeah i mean it, yeah absolutely but no i remember those times when it was you were you know you were either sort of east coast or west coast right. or you know, you're expected to sort of fall into these pockets. There's a super division. Yeah. And watching the NWA movie, it was, it kind of brought me back to that. For sure. Yeah. But I mean, they, they had an appreciation for the East Coast as well. And I think, you know, like the ultimate breaks and beats is basically in the mid to late eighties mm -hmm. to the, to the nineties. Like that's where everybody was getting their samples from. And that's, that's why you could make hip hop anywhere around the world. And it would, still sound like quote-unquote hip-hop you know mm -hmm. as long as you use that sp1200 and the ultimate breaks and beats then you're good yeah yeah that's interesting you mentioned that because you know you're you're kind of known as a collector a, a digger right for sure and uh you know watching the the stones throw documentary we see you uh buried under a lot of records <laughs> i know that's that's important to you yeah um how does that how did that happen, and how do you, um, like, how does that play a role in, in what you do? Because you sort of took, like, yeah. everyone was using Ultimate Beats and Breaks, right? They were, and yeah. You sort of took that. And that was, like, for me, because that was another thing about living in San Jose. There really weren't record stores um, where you could buy used records. There's a store called Streetlight where I would find, yeah. you know, you could find, well, I was going to say James Brown, but you couldn't even find that. That was too rare, you know. Really? Um, until the reissues came out in like 86, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, you, you do the thrift store thing and you, you get lucky like one out of every t 20 times you go there. And, you know, other than that, um, it's like really just meeting people who have parents who had the records and, mm -hmm. you know, you bought quote unquote borrow their <laughs> records. And, um, but yeah, I mean, listening to my early productions, it was a lot of the ultimate breaks, and that, yeah, that was when that was available. You could get those, I guess, like at Tower Records. But even then, it, you would go and out of like twenty-five volumes, there would always only be like one or two that was in stock. Everything would be sold out. That that those records were just super rare. Mm -hmm. So, do you think um, you know one thing that stands out to me about your career, and you know? We'll talk a lot about Stone's Throw, and, and as a label, I think you guys have 
you've accomplished a tremendous amount and contributed, made big contributions to the culture, right? From bringing the world Mad Lib um, to the work you did with JD to Mayor Hawthorne to Aloe Black yeah. um, and, a, and a much longer list that we can go into. Yeah. Um, but just right there. And Dame Funk and Doom, those are the ones really like. Absolutely. Yeah, out of, yeah. Those are probably like the five or, or six, you know, that, sure. that people know. But, um, but, uh, but beyond that, like there's been, you know, you've, you've had a lot of room for experimentation. Um, that's what I enjoy more. And it, in a way it's like, it almost makes it less of a cohesive label, but I don't really, I just don't care about that. I just want to put out what I want. I'm really, I don't know, headstrong or stubborn or whatever with that. Yeah. They say Libras are stubborn, so maybe that's <laughs> what it is. But. Um, so, so how does that work? From a from a business perspective, well, it's tricky for sure. Um, I remember when I started experimenting more, and you know, really, Stone's Throw in my mind was always experimental. When I put out Quasimodo, that was very experimental. Nobody was making hip hop like that, and mm -hmm. you know, when I approached Madlib about releasing it, because that was something he just did on the side for fun, and he was like, really, you really want to put that out? Like, he was surprised, but he was he was happy. He was like, I'm down. Like, if you're down, I'm down. I just didn't think you, I didn't think you'd like this. Get on the freeway, yo, it's after dark. Guess who always pulls up right behind the can? Some narcs. Letting all kinds of speed cars pass. Just so he can harass our black ass. Police pulling us over for no reason. Searching the car. Like it's nigga hunting season. Yeah, round. Asking about where's the pound? Where's the guns? Are y'all niggas on the run? You got warrants? Y'all niggas ready for some torment? That's how they be cracking. It seems like they be acting. Except it's real life. Like they rushing up your residence. Searching your crib. I mean, even though. It was, that was like uh, something that it took a minute for people to c catch on to. Like, I remember Bobito, like when I gave it to him, he wasn't really feeling it at first. And, you know, that was, was and still is somebody that I always really look up to mm -hmm. um, for his opinions and stuff and hip hop. And um, that was frustrating to me more, like running into those hurdles with it. But now, like looking back, like that's Quasimodo's like, something that a lot of people relate to and get a tattoo of and you know they're real passionate about it yeah. um but it seems like yeah th with the more chances that i take i remember there like because hip-hop there is like that kind of keep it real attitude that it's not i mean most people aren't really that way anymore but there are some where mm -hmm. This guy made like a Stone's Throw fell off T-shirt and was selling it at all the hip hop shows, you know, because because wow. I started releasing like stuff that wasn't really hip hop or you yeah, know. yeah. Um, so I guess I'm wondering how much is that a plan versus just not giving a shit? It was really not giving a shit for me, but I think in a way that kind of kept me afloat almost. Like it was like a happy accident because at the time hip hop the the keep it real hip hop had gotten kind of stale to the point where yeah. people were either trying to do different things with, with rap music or they were just going into different musics altogether. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, like odd future is a good example for me. Like they came 
their interest in Stone's Throw wasn't even necessarily the hip hop acts. It was they were into John T and they were into James Pants and mm-hmm. they found out about Stone's Throw through that stuff. And they're supposed to be like, you know, the, the kings of hip hop for the youth. And right. And the fact that they are gravitating towards that more, that made me feel proud. Like, OK, I'm like kind of on the right track with the kids, too, possibly like, you know, I mean, that that's not what I do it for, I guess. But. Um, so but how much you pay attention to that, like, uh, you know, a traditional label you know they have a they have a research department you know they're right they're right and you know they're following the trends on youtube and you know yeah. and all that stuff and i know you're um in addition to running the label you know you're a dj you're out a lot yeah you're really connected to the to that's kind of how i do it more it's yeah it's more intuitive and yeah yeah it's just an extension of who i am it's not yeah i i, I don't know i mean First of all, I can't really afford to go after the people with the big buzz. Sure. That's just never really, it hasn't been our business model, but it, it also, I, I guess I take pride in discovering things before anybody else knows about it anyways. I mean, there's like an example like Snoop Dogg working with Dame. That's that's like an example of um, the, the, the exception rather than the rule. Like mm-hmm. normally I wouldn't work with somebody who has already that established, but that made sense because it was something different and um snoop was just really open you know to to dame's ideas like dame had full creative control of the music yeah. and stuff and yeah yeah so that that worked out really well for us creatively Niggas hit the pavement when I come through slow in a six fold hanging out the window. Niggas hit the pavement when I fall through the club, chucking up the dub on your scrubs. Niggas hit the pavement, DF on the beat. If you don't work, you don't eat. Niggas hit the pavement. Real true statement, grind till they pay me. Real niggas hit the pavement. I'm in a coat white DM, just clocked in at 11 p.m. Generally, um, I usually sign artists who have zero soundcloud zero youtubes you know all that like yeah no no nothing out really yeah well it makes me wonder i mean i I kind of think of stone's throw less as a label and more as a cult like Mm -hmm. you know i I think you just have fans that are devoted um and are and have kind of bought into what you're doing and I almost wonder if that if that would happen as much if you were making safer bets or bets that, from yeah. a business perspective, kind of make more sense. Yeah, I mean, I never thought of that until you said it right now. That's true. Um, and then I'm sure that, you know, you have, you know, as you said, there's probably some people that don't get it and that are, they may, uh, they may, get into one record, but then, you know, mm-hmm. nothing like nothing sounds the same. So yeah. You know, you sort of lose people along the way. Right. And it's it's almost like um, a snake shedding skin or something. Like, I think that's like a, a necessary thing sometimes. I yeah. mean, as long – I don't expect everybody to be along for the ride. Like, you know, it's been – well, it'll be 20 years in, a, in a, like very soon. But, um, yeah, I mean – I, basically, as long as I'm paying the bills and still putting out stuff that I feel happy about, then that's that's pretty much what I do it for. 
Yeah. That's awesome. So talk about, I know the 20-year anniversary is coming up. Yeah. Anything you can, any plans you can share with us? Um, I mean, we're just going to tour a lot. We're, yeah, there's not, we don't really have, we didn't do like a 20-year album or any of that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's like, we're co-branding with some companies and stuff on different things. But it's, yeah, it's just, we're the main thing is we're going to just do shows like all over the world, try to get some of the old artists and some of the new artists together on a tour. So Nice. Yeah, so I know, that, you know, parties have been a big part yeah. of what you've done. You had all the, um, I don't know what you called those, but all the kind of numbered dates. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, July 7th, 2007, and yeah. July, uh, August 8th, 2008, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that sort of... That was fun for a while. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, for that, I mean... So are the parties important uh, to you personally? Are they important to the business? Is it some of each? Uh, I think the part, I mean, that, that series you're talking about and specifically that was just to keep having fun with it. Cause I've been DJing for so long. I mean, like I said, my first time on stage was 1987. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, most people at the clubs were born after 1987. So, <laughs> um, it's just, yeah, it's like the. Like for twelve, 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 I DJed twelve hours straight for Boiler Room, and my my idea for that was just to play all different types of music and not even mix, not not like a nightclub set, and yeah, people would get online and they didn't understand that, and they're like, what? Why am I watching this? He's just standing there like playing records, and it wasn't even meant to be watched; it was more meant to be listened to, and uh -huh. uh, but um, you know, yeah, and all these people are defending it and like explaining it to them, and like it's you know, yeah performance art i don't know well that's what's interesting right is when the crowd gets involved yeah and, you know and defends you or or you know take puts their own take on it right and, i love and that I, yeah this girl made fun of my name she was like a comedian she made fun of my name on twitter or something and then i just wrote hashtag white girl problems and then <laughs> like all all the people that follow my stuff they were all defending me like just like i mean i never even like get into that stuff usually but yeah it was just funny to see that's funny so um you know with that in mind um how do you judge the success of a project it's obviously you know yeah i, I would imagine it's not just about how many copies you sold right yeah, um, it just really depends what your definition of success is because some of my most successful records in my head were the ones that I just really like how it turned out. And, you know, I got, like, some opinions from people who I really respect, like, just inspired by it or, um, yeah, I mean. What, what's one of those? Uh... Huh. I mean, Gary Wilson, a lot of people, Gary Wilson, he was kind of known in the outsider world, but he wasn't known in the hip hop world. And then a lot of people in hip hop, that was just another example, like the odd future just off the top of my head. But mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah, I mean, th there's like an artist, Koshik, that I, I really like that I put his stuff out and it didn't really sell very well. And he never did a single show in his life. He just, I mean, he did some 
DJ gigs, but mm -hmm. never he's never sang in front of an audience. And yeah, um, as long as the artist doesn't have expectations that aren't met and the record sounds good, then that's a success to me still. You know, I, I mean, I of course, I always want my goal is for like all the people that I work with to be able to make a career out of it where they don't have to have like a, a side job or anything like that. So sure. That's something that I kind of have in the back of my mind with artists, but um, like Vex Ruffin is an artist. I'm working on his second album with him right now, and I had an idea to have Fab Five Freddy on a track, and you know, I sent it to him, and he was like, "Oh, this totally reminds me of like what it was like in Lower East Side in mm -hmm. 1983, and blah blah blah." You know, and he was like, "I'm in, like, you yeah. know, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll be on the track," and. And so I guess that's a success to me that, that when that kind of stuff happens as well. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that happens a lot or that, that you know, you know, you're, you're bringing people the opportunity to have a more sort of culture experience. Right. Uh, as opposed to just strictly the business. You know, I, I, we, yeah. we often talk about on this show how the business is kind of eaten up the culture in a lot of ways right mm -hmm. or it's sort of dictated the direction that the culture's gone yeah you know i think certainly the major labels and even a lot of the indies like you know they're following the trends rather than yeah dictating them yeah um which just means that you know people go after what sells right so i think when you're able to offer people an alternative to that that's probably pretty attractive yeah are there folks like that that you um you know you mentioned snoop are there other folks that, uh, you know, you, you decide you want to work with, not so much for commercial reasons, but but to sort of bring them into that, that experience? Well, Steve Arrington was one. Also, he was someone that I really was into as a kid. I would ride my bike and, and play his music on a boombox. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, to work with him was a dream come true. So, And that, yeah. that record didn't do very well either. That that was him and Dame doing something together, mm -hmm. um, but he's, you know, he's an artist that. I mean, he was making records in the '70s and '80s, and then he basically just completely stopped doing it for um, spiritual reasons and mm. stuff, and just just got really deep in the church. And then Dame Funk pretty much, I wouldn't say brought him out of retirement, but you know was. I guess at the right place at the right time and convinced him to to work with us and he's just went to Tokyo for the first time in his career and it's you know his career nice. is like 40 years or, or longer so yeah when you hear stuff like that it just it makes me happy you know that I was even a part of it in, in a small way absolutely yeah what about um, what about that uh, what do you I mean I would imagine that the artist you work with learn a lot from you because you have a very uh you know seem like a very specific point of view mm -hmm. on on music and um what do you learn from from them uh i mean i'm always learning stuff from everybody like um and some sometimes it's just kind of observing and Yeah, that, that's a tough one. Like, I mean, like, we got the No Worries Project with Knowledge and Anderson Tack. 
Uh, smooth in the motherfucker. Suede on the inside. Candy paint, candy paint. I ain't gotta tell you what the rims look like. Look, I'm gripping wood like a motherfucker. She asked me, can a friend ride? Kelly wanna have a drink. And Shani wanna pop pills all night. Look, don't be fucking with my tape, Dad. You gon' listen to this Marvin. You gon' listen to this Bloodstone. Oh, y'all niggas with that bare white. Well, I don't really fuck with that bare he just kind of gave me like a booster shot almost just seeing Anderson like just do so much in such a small amount of time. And I, you know, I think he's really going to go far, mm-hmm. like a lot further than I could be responsible for. And, you know, he's just um, worked stuff out with Dre. I mean, he was on Dre's album, of course, yeah. but I think he's going to be doing stuff with him, you know, in the future. And yeah, I'm very happy to be doing what we're doing with him and and um him and knowledge's project together is you know it's like exactly what i like personally for stone's throw but he he also has sounds that are going to go you know other places as well so mm-hmm. um but i mean it's not like he taught me anything but he he just reminded me like how how far a smile will go and like believing in yourself but being positive and you know being courteous and kind to everybody else and yeah it just it makes everybody like want to work for him like harder you know mm-hmm. what about madlib it seems like madlib had a pretty big impact on the label early on yeah i mean still but like yeah probably out of any artist that i've worked with he's probably the if I had to pick one, he's probably the biggest part of Stone's Throw, you know, mm-hmm. from from an artist's standpoint. Yeah. We I mean, there was a, yeah, there was a good run of like maybe five or six years where that's really was the focus of Stone's Throw was to just try to keep up with everything he was doing because he, you know, he was working with so many artists and he was doing jazz and he was doing hip hop and yeah, doing broken beat electronic music and. I don't know, but Madlib. <laughs> so does that take the label <clears throat> in a different direction, or is it like, uh, you know, you have your thing? Like, is it? Let me get the question together. Yeah, I mean, like, is it kind of uh, what you're doing? Is it just all encompassing to include? these things or do you kind of get shifted you know a little bit with each experience with madlib i was definitely yeah getting shifted because like i remember when he first told me he wanted to do a jazz album and i had never thought stone star would release a jazz record but and i didn't know that he knew how to play instruments at all he just he he was like a master at sampling and which is a, a total art form in itself, but I didn't think he mm-hmm. could just jump on every instrument. And like, you know, he he was just like, he didn't, I, I think he never really cared about criticism. And that that's like his his beauty is that, like when he said he was gonna do this, and I, I said, well, you know, it was almost like a challenge. Like, let's see if you can, if, if we go and buy all these instruments and we bought like, bunch of different electric pianos and synthesizers and drums and upright bass and you know 
and he learned how to play all of it like not like not like a pro but good enough to put his ideas down and yeah. and get them out of his system and i remember when we met weldon irvin weldon was just like there's no way this brother just learned how to play instruments like last year i'm, I'm gonna look him in the face and i could tell when someone's lying <laughs> and you know he was he was saying like some of his other hip-hop because he weldon like he started uh teaching hip-hop artists how to to play keys and stuff mm -hmm. like kind of as a side thing and he was like uh, you know so and so like can't even like do like one 50th of what madlib's already doing and i've been working with this guy for like you know two or three years so yeah but i mean we just we rented a a, a vibe vibraphone and like he learned we rented it for a month and the first three weeks he learned how to play it and then the last week he played it like you know recorded it for the album crazy and yeah i don't know yeah i mean i imagine working with people with that level of talent is just really inspiring it was yeah i mean it was a fun ride like working you know i mean we all lived together at that time and mm -hmm. um that well, was good times. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's another thing that stands out is is um, I mean, you guys still work out of a house, right? Mm -hmm. And people live there from time to time. Is that? Uh, everybody's kind of moved to okay. their own places. Madlib has his own place, and um, but for a while, yeah, we all did. Yeah. I mean, like the early, yeah, the early years for sure. Like Stone's Throw was run out of a house that I had, and mm -hmm. um, at one point it was me. Jeff, Ethan, Madlib, Doom was there for a few months, and then everybody's girlfriends, and it was just you know, was, and then there are all these like TV shows wanting to do one of those <laughs> real world type things, and we were like, no. <laughs> so is that a good idea? If you were advising a uh, a startup, would you tell them, you know, you guys should all live together? Oh, I mean, it, I I kind of like when I went to Sarah's house. I remember one time. I noticed they were all living together and they they had like their their setup was like in the kitchen and you know and that's kind of how it was with madlib too like mm -hmm. he, he just had everything everywhere like it was yeah it was pretty chaotic at, at one point yeah but then we got the bomb shelter when, when we moved to another house there was a a literal bomb shelter because it was like cold war it was you know made in the cold war era mm -hmm. and yeah, I remember there would be coffee cups, and I, I would, like, be cleaning up, and he was like, no, that's percussion, don't throw that out. Like, it, it would have, like, you know, <laughs> something in it. No way. Yeah, it was, he just, like, really just made do with whatever was laying around. Sure. So, what's what's been the most commercially successful record on Stone's Throw? Well, I would say, I'm not really even... I, I can tell you the, the three, but I don't know what's one, two, and three in Kay. that order, but uh, it's definitely the Mad Villain, the Aloe Black, and Donuts. Yeah.
So nasty that it's probably somewhat of a travesty having me. Then he told the people you can call me your majesty. Keep your battery charged. He you know it won't stick, yo. And it's not his fault you kick slow. Should've let your trick hold, chick hold your sick glow. Plus nobody couldn't do nothing once he let the brick go. And you know I know that's a bunch of snow. The beat is so butter. Peep the slow cutter as he uttered a calm flow. Don't talk about my mom, yo. Sometimes he rhyme quick, sometimes he rhyme slow, or vice versa. Whip up a slice of nice verse. I don't know which order. Yeah, they kind of fluctuate, but and do those? Um, so, Mad Villain would have been the first one. In terms of when we just in order, it. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. So, does that change the game for you? Like, is it how is it different before that record versus after? Um, I mean, I could answer that either. Either way, I could say that it didn't, or I could say that it didn't, and have like a a a, a good uh, argument for it. But. All right, let's hear. It. <laughs> <laughs> let's hear both sides. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it made things. Yeah, well, it, it made things the same because I I had a success under my belt, so I could experiment and do whatever the the fuck I want. Now, am I supposed? Yeah. to? Yeah, yeah. Am I allowed to cuss? I don't know. Please. I've tried not to this whole time. Oh no no no! Um, we encourage it. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, yeah, it's just made it able for me to do whatever I want. But then I guess on the other way to look at it is when you have a success, then people are waiting for another success. And like, you kind of have to. But, I, I, yeah, I don't really. I try not to let that influence my creative process of, you know, who I'm going to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, well, you mentioned, you know, people are expecting that. You don't have investors or. Right. Uh, no one really to answer to, right? Mm-mm. Um, almost got bought up by Rockus like, oh yeah, fifteen years or like twelve years ago, but I didn't, I yeah, didn't go through with it. And I've had major labels like step in, but not, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, really, like a lot of the successes that I've had were highly sample music, you know. So yeah. that's a, a nightmare for major labels, right? I mean, even I, I don't know if it's still the case, but I, I noticed maybe a year ago that the chronic wasn't on itunes i was really surprised about that mm-hmm. and de la soul like none of their albums are really on itunes like, is that just samples well with de la soul i know it is with with the chronic i don't know i was, huh. I, I was surprised interesting i think it is now because the chronic's just, on it now i think so yeah i thought i saw it after the deal be sort of embarrassing yeah. not to have it on there if he's a oh after the movie well no just after dre's you know, a big part of Apple Music now. Oh, right, um, right, right. So I think with I think when that happened, I, I think it's on. We're gonna check. That's right. After this, uh, investors. Yeah. So so you don't have those sort of outside pressures. I do in that I have a staff, and I right. I kind of I don't want to ever have to lay off staff, and you know I have like I think twelve or fifteen people like in the U.S. and Europe mostly. Yeah. One one in Japan, but mm. I mean, there's more responsibilities now than there was when I was renting a, a house for seven hundred a month, and yeah. you know had a staff of one myself, and was mixing down the the records in my house and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, so how does that weigh on your decisions, your creative decisions? 
I mean, I, it really hasn't had to though, because there, there's, I have a big enough catalog where I can sell ones and twos of a lot of different things and, mm -hmm. you know, still make ends meet. Like I don't have to have like a hit record to like keep the lights on necessarily, but, um, and you know, just, I mean, out, out of, it's, it's really the hits do come and go like a lot mm -hmm. of times even without me like being able to know what's going to be a hit um Aloe Black's second album I was like very very close to not releasing it at all because I I didn't that was good things yeah yeah see I couldn't even think of the name of it <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it yeah because I, I it was like a close thing where I I wasn't really a hundred percent behind um how that album turned out and and he was a frustrated artist where he you know he had been showing me music for maybe a year or two in between albums and we weren't really seeing eye to eye creatively mm -hmm. and so that that was tough for me because usually when i i don't want to be that label that is making people go back to the drawing board um but at the same time when the Stone Star logo's on the back, I, I want to be proud of it too. So sure, it's kind of. So so, how do you balance that? How do you balance your own vision with with an artist's creative freedom? I mean, I really like just sign artists. I try to sign artists where it's already like a full package without my involvement. Like yeah. I, I'm not trying to like mastermind it and be the puppet master where I'm changing everything around. And I think that was because when I was in a group with Charisma, we were on a major label. And once they signed us, they tried to change everything. And sure. I was like, w what are you guys signing then? Why did you sign us? I don't get right. it. But with that situation, the guy who signed us was the A&R, but then he had the, the powers that be that, that he had to like, you know, answer to, I guess. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for the most part, I mean, a, a great example would have been Jaunty where he, he had recorded, mixed, and mastered everything and gave it to me before I, I even knew anything, like before I knew him. Mm -hmm. And I, I heard it and I listened to it and I liked it start to finish and didn't have to do anything with it, you know. Like the White Boys record is similar to that. I didn't have any creative input other than I listened to it and I said, let's do this, you know, it's good. It's good as is, I don't need to change anything. Mm -hmm. Sometimes artists, they um, encourage my involvement more that way, and I, you know, I get excited about doing that as well. I mean, I was, like with Mad Villain, I was involved, like, with sequencing it and mixing, and you know, that the more technical stuff, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, usually with an artist, I, I feel like they're so great that um, it's not going to be a, a big problem. So back to the Allo Black record, that was a, you know, oh, that was, yeah, that was a almost didn't put out, but uh, you yeah. know, in hindsight, I'm glad that we did. And, um, I mean, his, he reaches a totally different audience than Stone's throw. And, and, you know, like the, the people, the diehard Stone's throw fans that, get the Quasimodo and Mad Villain tattoos and they they're not into Aloe Black's music at all but right. at the same time he was able to go a lot further than 
you know, our, our traditional fan base. So, yeah. So when something like that happens, like, does that, how does that impact the decisions you make after that? Uh, as far, well, specifically, as yeah, like, like the, what happened? What, when, so you have, I need a dollar, which becomes a right. pretty big hit. Yeah. Right. Um, and like you said, exposes a new audience that yeah. maybe you're not reaching with the but rest that of your new audience releases. didn't care about Stone Star. Like they right. didn't go back and buy anything else on Stone Star either. They were just really, I need a dollar and that was it. some people uh would probably be tempted to then like that becomes the direction to look for stuff like that and honestly like i got a lot of submissions from people yeah that had that sound and and that was frustrating because i i wasn't looking for that sound i'm just i just know what i like when i hear it sure i mean myron and e was like the closest thing maybe to that sound that and i i really love how that album turned out mm-hmm. yeah i imagine you got a bunch of white soul demos after mayor hawthorne came out yeah definitely yeah yep uh, but really like after mayor hawthorne came out then Allo said well i can do this like you know i can right. do this better than mayor probably i'm gonna i'm gonna go that direction i'm not because his first album was like future soul kind of like yeah giles peterson you know right. yeah and um so are you are you like how tempted are you then to sort of follow that? Because I think it's normal. Maybe normal is not the right word, but you know, it, traditional business. Yeah, <clears throat> you sort of follow your success, right? And, and right. you know, there's this whole idea of the pivot. Like you see what's working, and then you just do more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're kind of describing the opposite. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like... And that was kind of illustrated in the movie, too, I think. Like, yeah. they, they said that after Dilla passed away, then I, they they kind of made it look like I lost my mind and just went for only, like, weird weirdo music or something. A little bit. Yeah, and that... How true is that? It was a little true, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, so much like, okay, we lost Dilla, now I'm doing this. Like, I, you know, I was putting out Gary Wilson while Dilla was alive, and... And Dilla would be like, oh, I love Gary Wilson. What's up with Gary Wilson? And, you know, he was living with Common, and Common would always ask about him. And mm-hmm. I don't know if they were, like, messing with me or, like, but, I mean, I know, knowing Dilla, I know he would have really liked it. Like, he, Dilla turned me on to Bruce Hack, who's another kind of outsider artist, um, more electronic, though. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of counterintuitive, I guess, like. To not want to like, because after Dilla passed away, also then every every beat maker on the planet wanted to be on Stone's Throw because of Donuts, you know. Of course. So yeah. So uh, I, I want to talk about that for a minute. You know, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is how how you bounce back from 
adversity. And, you know, you've had two people really close to you who died kind of at the, maybe the peak or at, you know, mm-hmm. when they were on top of the game, right? First yeah. Charisma and, and then Dilla. Um, so how do you handle that? How do you get back in the game or stay focused on, on what you came to do when, when stuff like that happens? Um, I never, I never really thought about it. I just did it. I mean, with, when, when I lost charisma, I stopped doing music for a, a long time. Yeah. Not a long time, like six months, but that was, was a long time to me when I was mm-hmm. doing it every day. But, um, I don't know. Yeah. That was, that was the one thing that, that Snoop's like, he, Snoop called me the day after, like he saw the movie and he was like, he said that it really reminded him of what he dealt with losing his friend and. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask who. I assume we meant Tupac, or yeah. I don't know. But, um, and that—that's what made me happy to be able to share the story because there, you know, everybody has dealt with something like that as well, or or will yeah. at some point in their life. So, but well, I think a lot of people sort of give up, whether intentionally or not, right? But they, it w- I can see how it would be tempting to just let that derail yeah your path well in a way it did because i i was in a group with him and i told myself after that i'm not going to be in a group with anybody else and i mm-hmm. haven't to this day you know uh, madlib is probably the closest thing to like a substitute to charisma where like i was focused on madlib a lot mm-hmm. um, but i mean I met Charisma in 1990, and I, I wrote that that essay on what I want to do when I grow up in 1985. And so the 85 idea was to do a label, and then the 1990s idea was to be in a group with Charisma. And when he died, and I went back to Plan A. Mm-hmm. Charisma was the Plan B. But you know, when I was with Charisma, he his stuff was so good to me that it made me just want to do that. Mm-hmm. So. And is that kind of what happens with other artists along the way? Like, do you find that? I mean, it sounds a, a little like then that happened with Mad Lib and then that happened with another artist. Is that you, you draw sort of inspiration from them? Yeah, I mean, I'm really close with Dame Funk, I guess, out of everyone on the label. Like, we're pretty close. Like, mm-hmm. we talk every day and stuff and mm-hmm. are into a lot of the same music. But, um, I mean, yeah. It's, over the years, I've just become. Those have been my become my friends, or the guys that yeah. I work with musically. And what about now? You you know you mentioned people that you looked up to early on, and you know those uh, affirmations or not, like you know from Bobito or whatever. Um, and Bobito said a lot of good stuff. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, of I, I shouldn't have even said that. But no, no, no. But that was like, yeah. I mean, but Bobby, he was on the yeah, show. You know, know, he's he's known for being really outspoken and right. And that's and that's, that's what's what great like about him. Is that he keeps it a hundred. Yeah, yeah, always. Absolutely. Definitely. So, um, so are there still people who's out there now that you look up to in that way, or that whose whose opinion kind of matters? Mm, I think just a lot of people I work with, like. A lot of like knowledge and mm-hmm. like um, this guy Alex, who's who records under the name Mild High Club. Like I, when I find records, when I because I'm still discovering records every day, I'm yeah. I'll send 
emails like to like a, a select group of maybe f five to ten people mayor hawthorne and you know mm -hmm. and i i just like getting their feedback or i like showing them stuff still you know and that that was like that's why i started doing this i mean i in high school i was making mixtapes for people and i it, every time i made a tape you i didn't have a dubbing deck so you'd have to like do it from scratch each time and mm -hmm. um and each person's tape that they got was a little different than the other person but it was kind of that that sharing of music that i you know that i was doing bullshit now it's been it'll be 30 years i guess but yeah that that hasn't changed either yeah do you still have um you know you mentioned that essay you wrote in 1985 do you still do you still do that not essays but do you still write your plans i don't write them on paper as much it's mm -hmm. mostly on the computer but it's i i've been told that it's really important to write things on paper physically like yeah it's uh it actually gets done more when you do that mm -hmm. than just thinking it and I mean, I still have like a lot of, yeah, I have different ideas that I have written down and I have money making ideas that I write down too that are not related to Stone's Throw because I would, if, if Stone's Throw didn't make any more money for me and I, and I got my primary source of income somewhere else, it would be more liberating where I could really put out only what I want. I mean, I, there's nothing that I put out where I'm like, oh, that sucks, but there's, right there's albums that I'll put out where like not every song on it's great mm -hmm. to me personally. But, um, yeah. I, I so what, what's something, I mean, you don't have to give any secrets, but you know, what's something you would do if you made all the money you needed somewhere else. And then what, what would you do with stone's throw? Oh, what would I do with stone's throw? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would even do it that much different than I do now, but Kay. I just, I know that iTunes, for example, sales are going way down on it. And yeah. You know, just, just assuming that just in the off chance that things continue to sell less than they were, you know, God forbid. I mean, I, I would still want to keep putting records out. Absolutely. Um, and then what about working with brands? I know, you know, we had a couple opportunities to work together. When I was handling Mazda, we put right. Mayor on tour and, yep. and did something together around that. And I know, you know, we did some stuff with Scion together. Mm -hmm. um, what is, you know, how does that work for you? Because obviously you have such a specific vision mm -hmm. um, for the label and, and the music you're making. How does, how do brands sort of naturally fit into that? I think during the anniversaries, the brands are more interested, like the 20 year next year, we have a lot of co-branding stuff in the works, but nice. for a lot, a lot of the times, I guess w we don't do that many stones throw shows partially because the direction of the labels gone different ways where you, you almost can't put like some of the artists on a, on a bill together. <laughs> Right. you know it yeah. would just wouldn't make sense so yeah um and that's partially why i started another label i have a, another label that i've done for more of the rock type stuff i guess for lack of a better term what's the name it's called circle star and okay so 
Mild High Club's the first artist that is basically like you know doing tours and stuff. I guess the first um, minor success on that label, but he he kind of works with like Ariel Pink and Mac DeMarco, you know, the, out of the lo-fi. I mean, his stuff's like kind of 60s psychedelic, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but you guys, when did you make the Our Final Ways of Time? I think it's been like three years now, maybe. And so that's a little unusual to for for you to make kind of your own movie. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, we basically these guys from France came to to us and wanted to do a documentary and they they flew out and you know they they filmed me and like as many people as they could for a month mm -hmm. and they put this movie together and they had funding from i think the french government they were gonna it was gonna be on national tv in france nice and then for whatever reason the french tv said no after they had all the footage and everything Are you kidding yeah, so they pulled the plug on it, and then while that was happening, these guys in L.A. hit us up and said, we want to do a documentary on Stone's Throw. And so I, I put them in touch with the guys in France, and they, they worked it all out, you know. And they used that they used the French footage as well as their own footage, mm. as well as archival. And, you know, so it wasn't it wasn't like an idea that I wanted. I never, I never thought of doing a Stone's Throw movie. Like it wasn't, you know, it was these guys basically came to us and people through the years have always said, we want to do a documentary on Stone's Throw and it never really turned into anything. So when these guys came to me originally, I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. We'll see what happens. But uh -huh. I didn't really, I wasn't holding my breath over it, Yeah. but they, they really were hard workers and they, you know, they made it happen. And, and is that something you would do more of? Like, is there a, Stones Throw Pictures, is that no, coming? No, I mean, I, I've always wanted to do a Dilla movie as well as a Madlib movie, but, I mean, you know, a lot of people want to do that, so. Sure. Um, yeah, but even the, the Stones Throw doc, I mean, I, I never thought it would be, like, playing at the arc light and, you know, being on netflix and all that stuff like the, the yeah. guys the guys did a pretty good job of getting it out there you know absolutely um but what about what about artists like is there something um that they learn from you gotta ask them okay <laughs> is there something you want them to learn from you um no, I'm not here to teach him anything, really. Okay. I was thinking that knowledge, he went to Asia for the first time, and he was really blown away, and it was, like, eye-opening for him, and he, like, sent me an email, like, just thanking me and, like, you know, just really appreciative. And I, I just, I'm not used to to hearing that, like, that direct, you know. Like, I, I mean, yeah. everyone I work with is is really easy to work with. Um, but that was, that was pretty cool. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Who's your favorite DJ? Oh, J-Rock comes to mind right off the bat. Dame Funk, uh, James Pants. J-Rock's, uh, really technical. I mean, I, I love what Madlib does DJing too. 
Hadlib doesn't he doesn't let um, anything influence him other than just playing what he wants to play I guess mm-hmm. like with I mean with Stone's throw I I feel like I'm a lot more to the left than I am with DJing like when you're DJing you have a dance floor and a lot of if not most of the, well probably at least half of the people who are there don't even know who you are they got invited by someone else or whatever sure. so you want to kind of make sure everyone's having a good time it's kind of but um i mean dame is like dame's always very underground with his selections and he's he's so good on the mic that he can kind of get away with playing more uh lesser known music and mm-hmm. stuff i think so he's he's an inspiration to me definitely djing can you think of a favorite live show that you've ever seen um i mean just because we were talking about dame i was just thinking of a show that he did in san francisco that that i was really like happy to be at and my girlfriend had never seen him live and she was really into it and she you know she didn't know what to expect i guess she's she doesn't even necessarily listen to that much stone throw stuff but she's kind of more in a different scene i guess mm-hmm. so ymo was good live saw them recently oh yeah yellow magic orchestra that uh-huh. was cool. any and so like that anybody any new acts you're checking for folks that aren't maybe not on the label yeah definitely i mean i i'm in a well, I'm in talks with some some guys that I want to sign, so I don't want to yeah, do that till after. <laughs> no, I meant stuff yeah. that's out. Like, yeah. Oh right. Oh, just, just new like, records. Oh right. Um, yeah, I mean, Flying Lotus has been putting out some good stuff on his label. That. Um, yeah, I mean Thundercat, like his stuff's been really good, and the jazzy stuff that they've been putting out. Nobody moved, there's blood on the floor Yeah, I mean, I'm still, like, learning about music every day, though. New and old. Sure. Nice. Well, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. This is fun. Come back anytime. You want to promote something, send your artist by. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Oh, that's all you meant, like, right now. No, no. (laughs) Um, No, yeah. But give us the uh, where to find you on social. On on what? On social. Oh, on socials? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know if you said Stone's Throw. Oh. Uh, Well, it's... The the Instagram's the hardest. It's P N T B T R W L F. I probably need to. I shouldn't have made that. <laughs> That's cool. One, make the other ones make people PB find Wolf. it. Yeah. P B Wolf. Otherwise. I mean P B Wolf at Twitter and Facebook. Cool. Yep. Thanks. Very simple. Thanks. Peanut butter wolf, y'all. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Come back next week for more Rebel Radio. In the meantime, leave us a note on Twitter. Subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud. Do something with your life. Peace.